Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 42. And as you do, at the heart of this psalm is the question, why? It's the cry of one who feels like he has been abandoned by God. He knows that he hasn't, but he still feels as though he has. So in one moment, he's, he's asking the Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then the next, he's asking himself, like, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Asking himself, well, why do I feel this way? As he knows he, he shouldn't feel this way, but he still does feel this way. And this is someone who appears, by all accounts, to have a, a really good theology, like knows how to think rightly ab about God. But he still finds himself asking the question, why? Both to God and to himself, which I believe makes him like, incredibly relatable to us this morning. Because I dare say many of us have found ourselves asking similar questions in, in recent days. If you haven't, you likely will. Well, that's the thrust of Psalms 42 and 43. Two psalms combining together as one three stanza song. And so to help us understand this song, uh, let's start by looking at the heading that comes before verse 1. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. This, this telling us a couple very important things about the psalm. One, it tells us its author was a temple song leader. Because that, that's who the sons of Korah were. And two, it tells us that it's a song of instruction. As the Hebrew word maskel, though, though hard to definitively translate, refers to, to making one wise, thus in instructing. A reminder that the Psalms are, are meant to instruct both our, our mind and our emotions around the truths of God's Word. Our, our emotions then being driven by our mind, not our mind by our emotions. So picking up in Psalm 42 and reading through Psalm 43, join with me in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in, in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I, re I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have, have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, 
a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, in reading this psalm, you can feel the emotion welling up from the text in these psalms. I imagine them being written and, and sung with, with tears streaming. We, we don't know the, the direct circumstances that have brought about the context of these psalms. Oh, I wish we did, but we don't need to. Because what we do know from verse 4 is that the psalmist longs to be back in the house of God. Longs to be back in the temple in Jerusalem. And something, something is keeping that from happening. That, that something could be exile. It could be sickness. Could be any number of things. But whatever it is, it's cut him off from Jerusalem and the ability to worship in the temple. We can somewhat relate to this this morning, can't we? cut off from being able to gather together in person, stuck in, in this virtual exile, if you will. But here's why this is so tragic to the psalmist. Because the temple in the Old Testament was, was where one went to meet with God. And if you couldn't go to the temple, you, you couldn't meet with God, which is the very thing the psalmist longs to do. Which is not the same as us at all this morning. And today we're going to look at why. So here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to get a basic overview of this psalm by looking at each of the three stanzas. So stanza 1, verses 1 through 5. Stanza 2, verses 6 through 11. And stanza 3, being all of Psalm 43. And then, after those review of those three stanzas, then we're going to look at six ways we see the author fighting for hope in the midst of the darkness in the midst of despair so starting with stanza number one we see how the the psalmist starts by, by describing his soul being like that of a, a deer panting for flowing streams flowing streams of, of water which if you're familiar with with this verse at all 
You've probably seen it used as this as the inspiration for, for paintings, like a painting of a picturesque scene with a deer kind of gently drinking from a lovely flowing stream. Like it's a beautiful scene. Like, man, I wish I could be there now, like on vacation, cabin, nestled in right next to the stream. There's a deer drinking. But that's not the image the author intends to convey at all. The imagery conveyed here isn't that of tranquility and peace, but of desperation and longing. The deer described as, as panting for water, longing for flowing streams of water with none to be found, nothing quenching its thirst. So the psalmist is using this simile to illustrate that he's feeling what he's feeling deep within his soul. Saying in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You can feel the anguish in these words. But instead of flowing streams, what does the, the psalmist find himself drinking of? Bitter, salty tears. Tears that, that bring about doubt and that bring about questions that are circulating in his mind. Like, like, where is your God in all of this? Where is he? Has he deserted you? Has he forgotten you? This may be the kind of questions that you have running through your mind today. Where? Why? When? Like desperately longing for this present trial to, to end, but having no clue like when it's going to happen. So, ah! Really struggling with where God is in, in all of this and why he would ordain such a thing to happen. Why? So many heartfelt questions that, that can lead to despair, even for the most faithful of Christians. So what does the psalmist do in an attempt to bring himself out of this despair? Well, the same thing that we're prone to do. First, he tries to remember the good old days. The spiritual highs that he's had throughout his life. He, he recalls in verse 4 the times when he used to, to lead people in singing and worship in the, in the house of God. He, he remembered the, the songs of, of praise. He, he remembered the people singing. He remembered the festivals. He, he remembered the, the good times with everyone gathering at the temple. And then asked himself in verse 5, as if in an effort to, to change his emotional state, Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's wondering why he's, he's feeling the way he does, considering all the joy he's experienced in the past. And he tries to give himself, like if you will, like a, a spiritual pep talk. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then he moves to stanza number two. And what still remains? Verse six. He still downcast therefore he, he does what he, he continues to fight to remember but as, as he does as he continues to fight to remember he's, he's longing for flowing streams of water that that longing is still very much overcome by what by despair and instead of flowing streams he's experiencing what waterfalls and breaking waves and he attributes these waterfalls and these breaking waves to who? Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He attributes them to God. Why? Because he knows God is sovereign over everything. Mind understanding here. But thinking about how the psalmist feels emotionally. Think about this. You ever been to the beach and stand in the breaking waves? Just just letting them pound you like one after another, whether it's small ones or big ones. Either one. If you stand there long enough, you will it'll wear you out and they will eventually knock you down or they'll kind of bury you in the sand. That's the way the psalmist feels spiritually. Just beat down with despair. Again, that may be the way you feel this morning. But it's like the more he longs for God, the greater his despair becomes. So what does the psalmist do? He continues to fight for hope. He continues to fight for joy. I say to God, my rock. And let's be careful not to pass by this too quickly. Look what he says. He says, I say to God, my rock. Because is that how he feels? Does he really feel like God is his rock in this moment? Sure doesn't seem like it. Seems like an emotional train wreck if we look at it and we read here. His circumstances clearly playing a major impact on his emotions in this moment. Again, we can all relate to this. Our our circumstances playing havoc with our emotions in times of uncertainty. Maybe you you find out that you've been furloughed or, or let go from your job. All kinds of emotions and questions and uncertainty flood in. I I get it. Or, Or maybe a doctor reveals a diagnosis that you never wanted to hear. Same thing. All kinds of emotions and uncertainty. Emotions like all over this place. Questions swirling like wave after wave pounding upon you. So then the question, what brings the psalmist to say? I say to God, my rock. The answer? It's his understanding of Scripture and what the Scripture teaches about God. That's that's what's grounding him in truth. That's what's reminding him mentally that God is his rock. But from his emotional despair, what's he doing? He's crying out, why have you forgotten me? The enemy's voice is taunting with with the question, where is your God? Which again brings the psalmist refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Which leads to stanza number three. And while the two preceding stanzas or internal laments. That is what he's wrestling with internally. The the psalmist trying to talk himself out of his despair. This one changes to an external prayer to God. No longer is he relying on, on memories of days gone by, but he turns to pleading to God directly. Verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Deliver me. He's crying out to God for vindication and deliverance, pleading with God to send out his light and his truth, to dispel the darkness, to bring him to God's holy hill, to his dwelling. 
again to the presence of the temple where he will once again go to the altar of God, to God, his exceeding joy, and praise him. And you can tell as you read these two psalms from beginning to end that there's a confidence rising as he sings, a growing trust in, in the promises of God, even in the midst of despair. So when he comes to the refrain in verse 5, he sings with a different tone. Same words from verses 5 and 11 in Psalm 42, but totally different tone. As this time, it's, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Now look again at the psalmist's prayerful cry in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. What's he doing here? He's asking for deliverance. He's crying out for deliverance, crying out to God to be his refuge, to send his light and his truth, to dispel the dark despair that has overtaken him, to bring him into God's presence, to quench his spiritual thirst. And now ask, how has God answered this prayer? And in the immediate the immediate circumstance for him, we honestly don't know. We don't know if this psalmist ever gets to return to the temple. But we know Israel does. At least in, in a rebuilt sense. Yet even then, things never return to normal. That is the way that they used to be. History and lives have clearly been changed forever. But there's still a broader and truer answer to this prayer. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the psalmist's prayer. And here's how. Jesus is the vindicator of God's people, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. Sinners are saved one way, just as we studied through Galatians. Saved one way, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So while Jesus had not yet come at the time this psalm was written, this psalmist was looking forward in faith to the promises of God. Promises that find their yes and amen in who? In Jesus. Clinging to God and his promises for his vindication is this psalmist. Clinging to God for the source of his salvation. And while he looked forward in faith, what do we do? We look back in faith. Looking to Christ in faith as our vindicator, our deliverer, our refuge, the light that dispels the darkness, the, the source of living water that quenches our spiritual thirst. Quite simply, Jesus is the new temple. The temple that the psalmist longs to go to. Jesus is this new temple. Because remember, that's where the psalmist wants to return, right? Yes. Why? So he can meet with God. But because of Jesus, that's no longer necessary. Remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleared the temple? People asking, by what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, what gives you the authority to clear out the temple and to say the things you say and do the things that you're doing? Like, what? To which Jesus responded in verse 19 of John chapter 2. Destroy this temple? And in three days, I will raise it up. 
Of course, those listening were confused. If we were there, then we would have been confused as well. Like, how in the world could he rebuild a temple that took so many years to build in just three days? But Jesus wasn't speaking about a physical temple, was he? But rather the temple of his body. Crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. Jesus is the new temple. Meaning we don't go to a place to worship God. We go to and through Jesus to worship God. Now, to help us understand this a little further, do you remember the story of a woman, the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Well, turn with me there. John chapter 4, picking up in verse 21, where Jesus said to the woman at the well, give you just a second to get there. John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, woman, believe in me. Jesus calling this sinful Samaritan woman to repent and believe in him, saying, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, she thought that in order to worship God, one had to go to a certain place, had to go to a specific place. Like the psalmist longed to be in the temple. But look at verse 23. Where Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Meaning, authentic worship, that is the ability to to worship, the ability to meet with God, is no longer attached to Jerusalem or the temple or any other place. So as much as we long to gather again as the church, and for good reason, we want to to gather together again. We long to gather together again. We must long to gather together again. Regardless of that, our present circumstance does not keep us from the ability to worship. It keeps us from worshiping together in person, but it does not keep us from worshiping. Why? Because authentic worship isn't attached to a place. It's attached to believing in Jesus. For it was through the cross that Jesus abolished the need for a temple. Abolished the need for priests and sacrifices once and for all. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is our great high priest. The one who intercedes before the Father on our behalf. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, offering himself to to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. Oh, church, Jesus is our vindicator. Yes. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing about the story of the woman at the well that I want us to look at. And it's how the conversation between Jesus and the woman started. She comes to a well to do what? She comes to the well to draw water. Every day having to come to the well for water over and over and over again. And here Jesus asks for a drink. She, she's naturally confused as to why, because a Jewish man would never have been seen talking with a Samaritan woman in this day. So she's puzzled. She's confused. And yet Jesus responds in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus saying, if you knew who I am, you would have asked me for a drink. 
Of course, she looks at Jesus like he's crazy, like he's out of his mind because he has nothing to even draw water from the well with. Like, how is he going to give me water? He doesn't even have a bucket. Like, huh? And then Jesus says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well water, We'll be thirsty again. You're going to keep coming back over and over and over again. The water, however, he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And how did the woman respond? By saying in verse 15, give me this water. Now what's she doing? She's panting for flowing streams of water. She desires the living water, the water only Jesus himself can provide. And how is she to receive this water? By believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus and her thirst for God will be quenched. Believe in Jesus, friend, and your thirst for God will be quenched. He is the one who who comforts our weary souls. He is the one who will wipe away our tears. He is the one who brings vindication and salvation. He is the one whom we praise. So I ask you this morning, are you in this moment believing in Jesus? Are you in this moment trusting him as your only hope in life and in death? Not trusting some past decision, not memories of days gone by, but are you actively living a life of repentance and belief in Jesus today? If the answer is no, call upon Jesus in faith today. And he will vindicate you. He will save you from your sin and the judgment you deserve Because as scripture tells us, there is a much greater punishment that awaits those who don't believe than a momentary earthly despair. But now maybe you're sitting there thinking, Jeremy, I do believe, but it doesn't change my despair. It doesn't change my circumstance. Well, let's turn to the psalmist once again. And notice what does not change for him. His circumstances. His circumstances don't change. Again, we don't know if he he ever returned to the temple. But what has changed by the end of his song? His demeanor. See, the darkness hasn't lifted, but there's light in the midst of the darkness. And this light is a light of hope. Both as a light at the end of the tunnel and a light to guide our path, to comfort us along the way, to quench our thirsty souls. And that's what I I want us to take away from these Psalms. Believing in Jesus doesn't take away our trials. Suffering will always be a part of the Christian life. We will experience the effects of this fallen world. But, but, but we are not without hope. We can sing and say along with the psalmist, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And here are six things to help us do just that today. Number one, sing the gospel. Yes, it's it's better to sing together, yes, but our separation doesn't keep us from singing. By all indications, these psalms were written in a time of exile, a time of separation, a reminder that Christians are a people 
who sing. We sing in times of joy and in times of trial. But we sing. And we sing songs that shape our minds and emotions around the truths of God's Word. So use the Spotify playlist that we've provided or or some other means and, and let music play throughout your home and sing the gospel together. Two, don't, don't trust your emotions. Now, does that mean that our emotions are bad? No. Emotions are good. Our emotions are what help us to know that something's wrong. They're, they're, they're the reason the psalmist asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? His emotions are telling him something's not right with my walk with the Lord. Maybe that's you this morning. Your emotions are saying something's not right. But at the same time, we can't count on our emotions to lead us to the truth. That's where we must, number three, continually drink from the flowing stream of God's word. I can't say this enough. Someone will will come to me and they'll they'll say, Pastor, I'm really struggling right now with my walk with the Lord. I'm feeling distant and disconnected. My first question typically is, how is your time in the Word? And the vast majority of time, the answer is, well, it's not, not really that good. I'll be honest, I, just, I haven't had the time. But when, when you think about that, that, that's like someone saying, man, I'm really thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm really thirsty. Well, then you ask, well, when was the last time you had something to drink? Mm, last week. I had a drop or two this morning. But I've I've just been too busy. No one who is truly thirsty would ever do such a thing. Church, a, a verse a day or a Sunday morning sermon isn't enough to quench your spiritual thirst. The only thing that will quench <coughs> this thirst is by continually going to the stream, continually going to God in his word. Now, if you find yourself not thirsty for the Word of God, that's a different concern altogether. Because believers thirst for God and His Word. Number four, don't be afraid to ask God questions. It's okay to humbly approach Him in prayer and ask, Why, O Lord? When? But at the same time, we must do two things as we ask these questions. One, we must let him answer through his word, through his Bible. And two, we must trust the Bible even when God's answers don't make sense. Or better yet, even when we don't like the answer. Number five, plead with God to deliver you from the darkness. Nothing wrong with remembering times that you've walked closely with the Lord. Remembering the spiritual highs that can be good reminders of God's faithfulness in our, in our life. But they're not where our hope is found. Our hope is found in Christ today. Not, not, not just yesterday, but today. But when darkness abounds, when our emotions are telling us something's wrong, where must we also turn? To the Lord in prayer. Cry out for vindication. Cry out for defense, for for deliverance. But at the same time, trust that because our hope is in Christ, we have received vindication. Even if our present darkness doesn't immediately lift, we've received vindication because we're in Christ. 
Which brings us to number six. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Not, not just memories. Not pep talks like, you can do this if you just try harder. I can make it one more day. But reminding yourself every day that because of Christ and Christ alone, you've been vindicated. He's your defense. He's your deliverer. He's your refuge. He's your light and source of truth. He's the living water that quenches your thirsty soul. Yes. Oh, church, let's pray together. Oh, Lord, use your word this morning to quench our thirsty souls. As your word points us over and over and over to the hope we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.